Stuff to Blow Your Mind, New York Comic Con, Stranger Things. Yes, it all comes together on October 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at Hudson Mercantile in Manhattan. If you're in the area, join us for Stuff to Blow Your Mind Live Stranger Science as we explore the exciting science and tantalizing pseudoscience underlying the hit Netflix show Stranger Things. Stuff You Missed in History Class has a show right after us in the same venue so you can really double down on your stuff. You do not have to have a New York Comic Con badge to attend. It is a separately ticketed event. And hey, the three of us would love to meet you. This is the opportunity to do it. Learn more and buy your tickets at NewYorkComicCon.com slash NYCC hyphen presents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Christian Sager, and I made a mistake this summer. Oh, yeah? I decided it would be a good idea to reread Stephen King's It over the course of the summer in preparation of oh. the new film that just came out. How's that a mistake? That's a, that's a, that's a, a fat book, but a, a good one. It was, and I was very happy with having read it, but obviously my nightmare uh, quota filled up rather quickly. Uh, and there are some really disturbing stuff in that book that uh, isn't really in either film version, but they're definitely uh, percolating up here in the old brain noggin. Yeah, there is quite a bit of uh, traumatizing material in that book. Uh, it's been a long time since I've read it, but uh, yeah, there are certain things that uh, that stand out uh, to me today. Now, of course, we had that uh, that, that uh, 1990. Uh, miniseries based on Stephen right. King's It. Tim I rewatched that the day before I went and saw the new movie too. So I've had a full It experience oh, okay. this summer. Awesome. Yeah, yeah I mean the, the 90, 1990s uh, miniseries was 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 fun for the time. It, very yeah. flawed, but you had a wonderful performance by Tim Curry. Tim Curry nails it in that mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, playing Pennywise yeah. the Dancing Clown, one of the many terrifying forms of this uh, extra dimensional. Uh, Fear-eating, child-killing uh, monstrosity. Right. Yeah. And then you had what? Um, oh, uh, John Boy was in it. Uh, playing. That's the, right. The John Ringo. Boy was Bill Dunbarrow. Mm-hmm. John Ritter's in it. Oh, nice. uh, uh, what's his name? From uh, Night Court. Yeah. Uh, Harry, Harry Harry Anderson yes. plays Richie. But I was going to say Richard Major from The Thing. Oh, that's is right. In it as Stan. Uh, grown up Stan. Yeah. Uh, there's a amazing scene in the in the old miniseries where he uh, is a severed head inside a mini fridge talking to everybody. <laughs> it's it's played for laughs, but it's pretty funny. And of course, this year we uh, 2017 we just had this magnificent uh, adaptation of at least the first half of the novel. Yeah. Uh, and and I just saw it the other night, uh, Sunday night actually, and I thought it was terrific. Me too. I saw it as well, and I was. Uh, grinning ear to ear because it's very rare, uh, one, that you get a good horror movie and two, that you get a good Stephen King adaptation. And, yep. and this was, I, I just coming off the heels of the Dark Tower movie, <laughs> this was, this was spectacular because that Dark Tower movie was, uh, a little disappointing. Yeah. My, my only gripe about, uh, this uh, latest It movie is we didn't have a nice cheesy Stephen King cameo. That's uh, right. I never, yeah. I, I forgot about that. Yeah. He used to do all those. Has he done those lately though? He's not like Stan Lee, but he used to in the eighties and the nineties. I think he's done some for television. I thought I saw something on his Twitter the other day where he's doing. Is one. he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's always fun to catch him. All right. So obviously we're fans of it. 
We're, we're fans of, uh, of, of both adaptations. So we thought, hey, everybody's it crazy right now. The, the film's just performing, uh, like gangbusters out there. So why don't we do an episode on the science of it? And you know why? Because it's October. Yeah. And what do we do in October on stuff to blow your mind? All Halloween themed topics. That's right. So we, uh, this is the beginning of our bonanza for four weeks of doing, uh, topics on things not not necessarily it'll scare you, but that are related to horror or the season. Yeah, we keep it seasonal to the point that we're we're actually shoehorning uh, material into uh, uh, September or postponing it uh, till November just so we can focus on Halloween. Yeah. All right. So in this episode, I'm just going to lay out a few sort of ground rules for everybody so you know what we're going to do, what we're not going to do. First of all, if you're wary of spoilers. We are not going to get into like really hard spoilers, but we are going to talk about characteristics of the novel, of of the movie especially. So, you know, if you want to go in just 100% knowledgeless, uh, then maybe skip this episode and come back. Yeah, I mean, I would say like if you've seen any of our other Monster Science videos or episodes like the stuff that Robert and I have done on like – zombies or vampires or the um the science of the vampires from the strain things mm-hmm. like that like for the most part we don't get into spoiler territory or deep plot details it's mainly about like how the monster works and then how real life science applies to it and likewise we're also not going to get into some of the more esoteric stuff that is in the books but isn't necessarily in the films right right so i want to start off with a revelation okay my grandfather was a clown Oh, well, good for you. He was actually a doctor, Uh but he was also a clown. Like, his thing was, as a member of the Shriners, he and uh, a neighbor of his would dress up like clowns and perform as clowns at various hospitals or uh, children's centers and at the circus. And I remember as a young kid going to the circus and seeing my grandfather all clowned up, horsing around down there on the stage and entertaining people. And so I have some sympathy for Pennywise, but I also understand what makes Pennywise so creepy. Well, I think one thing to keep in mind with with Pennywise is that uh, Stephen King wrote this book really ahead of the the, the full-blown creepy clown culture. Mm -hmm. And certainly it played a part in developing that culture. But I, I don't really blame King as much for it because the whole gimmick here is that this awful creature from another dimension wants to take on a pleasing form yeah. in order to lure kids in and then it also like manipulates that in terrorizing them so it makes sense that it would pick something you know pure and innocent and fun the clown yeah right rather than like my little pony yeah like if it were operating today the thing is, probably would not use the clown. Would probably right. use something like, uh, you know, a character from Dinosaur Train or something. Um, <laughs> because kids is, today have been sort of generationally poisoned against the clown. They've, gr- they haven't grown up in the age of the clown. They've grown up in the age of the creepy clown. And unless you are going out of your way to foster an appreciation for clowns, uh, then they're probably just not going to have it. Yeah, it's true. And, and I'm sure you're aware of this, but there's been this backlash from actual clowns who are saying like, oh, this movie is going to make it harder for me to earn a living as a clown. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, guys, I, I think it's maybe more than the movie. I think, as Robert said, the age of the clown is maybe coming to an end, right? Uh, because we waged war against it and killed it. Like there was this thing that yeah. was was innocent and fun. 
and as a culture, we couldn't help but tear it to pieces. And we have to address this right up at the top. This is what we're referring to as cholrophobia, which is the fear of clowns, the supposed mm, fear yeah, of clowns. Yeah, not, not really a thing. Robert has covered this in, in many a venue. Uh, we have a Stuff to Blow Your Mind video that's all about this that you did, gosh, four years ago, maybe. I think so, yeah. Uh, and then there's a blog post on our site about it as well. But let's just get it out of the way because it's what most viewers and commentators of it are talking about right now. Um, so, okay, the behavior of clowns is unpredictable and their body movements are wild and exaggerated. So, obviously, that's something that can kind of freak you out, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in fact, they nailed that with Pennywise in the movie, I thought, like the – the way that they had his body contort in unusual ways, I think, really worked well. Yeah, I mean, but it was it was not necessarily clownish. It was uh, exaggerated to the point where it was um, it was it was grotesque. It was monstrous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, according though to author John G. Robertson, the term cholrophobia is almost certainly a product of pop culture and the internet. And isn't actually in any of the expected literature on phobias. So this is like one of those things that it's, it's great to talk about on the internet, but it, it's not something that like a psychiatrist is actually going to diagnose you with. It's probably not in the DSM. Yeah. I, you know, I think by and large, yes, a child can be scared by a clown. No question. Uh, a grown up can have maybe even traumatic memories of clowns. But this idea of like there's this widespread phobia of clowns, uh, yeah, I, I tend to be um, very skeptical of that. Yeah. And I think part of it, and you addressed this in both of your pieces, is that for the last couple of decades, we've had this plethora of scary clown imagery, not just Pennywise from the book and the miniseries and now this big movie. But you've got killer clowns from outer space. You've got the real life story of John Wayne Gacy. Right. There's just all of this stuff floating around that kind of makes Clown sinister. Uh, what's the House of a Thousand Corpses, right? Isn't oh, yeah, that yeah. Guy Rob clown Zombie loves his, uh, his clowns. Yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. He, he just came out with a whole clown movie, didn't he? I forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, so, but there is a study. It's a 2008 study at the University of Sheffield that was published in Nursing Standard. And they found that out of 250 children, most kids who are ages 4 to 16 dislike clown imagery. Big surprise. So what's the lesson here? Well, okay. They said... Maybe we shouldn't have clowns in hospitals anymore, especially because those are places where kids are unsettled and scared. So if my grandfather were still alive, I'd have to say to him, like, you might want to lay off the whole clown thing. Uh, This is why in children's hospital, it's so funny that Rob Corddry is always in clown makeup. Yeah, well, then that's that sort of adds. uh, They don't go straight up with the creepy clown on that show, but they do. Kind of toy with it a little, I guess. Well, he's always got, he's, he's always got clown makeup on, but then like his, um, smock, I guess you would call it, is mm-hmm. always covered with blood as if, <laughs> as if he just got out of surgery. Well, so he, here's something I do want to point out. And that is, uh, first of all, I think a lot, even, perhaps even the study, I don't have the study in front of me, so I can't speak to it specifically, but I think when people talk about fear of clowns, even if they are not bringing to mind creepy clown imagery, like overtly, purposely creepy clowns. Yeah. They are bringing to mind certain clowns. They are bringing to mind like a certain, um, you know, archetype of the, you know, the full white makeup, red hair, kind of a bozo the clown or a Pennywise appearance. Yeah. And there, 
it's it's not really fair to reduce all clowning traditions to that. Like there's there's a rich tradition of clowning that that spreads across cultures. In many cases, these were these are sacred traditions. Um, you know, especially when you look to various Native American uh, customs, like the the gesture, the clown, the fool. Yeah, these are culturally uh, important figures. Also, the whole idea of like the carnivalesque in in Europe being sort of an act of resistance, the commedia dell'arte, yeah, the, something along those lines, right? There's a long history behind all this. Oh yeah, and like if you go to say a Cirque du Soleil show, you yeah, know, you'll see a lot of a lot more modern takes on clowning. And I have to say, as far as hospitals go, uh. My my son was uh, in uh, in the children's uh, healthcare uh, center here in Atlanta a few years back, and I did see some clowns making the rounds, and they did not look like bozo Pennywise clowns. They were they were using very light clown makeup. They were using musical instruments, and it was it was just kind of a, of a, a delightful thing for the children. So, I, I do think that criticisms of clowns and discussions of fear of clowns. It, it doesn't always take into account the rich variety of clowning out there. Well, here's an alternative theory, okay? And you actually presented this, but you, you paired it with a, a nice bit of academic research. There's a clinical psychology professor named Paul Salkovskis, and he points out that children in general are far more susceptible to extraordinary and unusual imagery, right? Mm-hmm. So you then offered this, that it – let's compare the clown to a shopping mall Santa, Right. They're kind of equally terrifying and scary to children. Like, how many times have you seen a little kid forced to sit in Santa's lap oh, yeah. at the mall, just screaming, just absolutely upset? My nephew has done this so far every time my sister takes him to go see Santa. Um, so this, I think, speaks to the idea, right, that the age of clowns is over and is maybe just weirder to us than it used to be. Because as far as Santas go, there's certainly plenty of creepy Santa imagery out there, plenty of horror films, etc., that employ a killer Santa, mutant Santa, monster Santa, you name it. It's good. Yeah, yeah. There's probably more than clowns, actually. Yeah, but it's resilient to this kind of shift because we still culturally put a lot of value on it, and, mm-hmm. we, and, and we refuse to give up the wholesome vision of Santa uh, for the sake of this unwholesome. With the clowns, uh, we weren't willing to uh, maintain uh, what was sacred. So you want to take a break, and then when we get back, we can come back to – we can get past this clown stuff. Yes. <laughs> and we can get into the real nitty-gritty of the science breakdown of Pennywise. All right, we're back. So what about Pennywise can't be explained by science? Because let's be honest, <laughs> there's a lot of weird stuff going on in these stories. Yeah, it's – it's difficult with with it because we're essentially talking about a magical creature from outside of our world. Um, and also it has psychic abilities that are also beyond our reality. Uh, however, it does have to work in our world. It has to interact with our world. It's engaging physically and to some degree biologically with biological organisms. So we can derive, I think, a number of biological parallels here. We can... We can even get a little fringy at times, but I, I think we just have to keep an eye out for times when we're, uh, you know, waving the cudgel of science after, uh, you know, imaginary monsters. Right. Yeah. I do have to say, though, after doing the research for this, I was surprised at how well Stephen King's uh, – like taxonomy of Pennywise mm-hmm. fit into actual biological theories to the point that it made me wonder if he had done like a lot of research along those lines or if it was just sort of 
common sense. Yeah. For instance, like predators, like how how actual predators act in the wild. Well, this is something I, I think about a lot when I do, you know, monster science, monster of the week stuff uh, for stuff to blow your mind. And that's that you have these fantastic creatures and then you find all of these biological parallels. So you ask yourself, how did this happen? Yeah. Is it a situation where somebody sat down and planned it all out? I mean, sometimes a creator is really, uh, you know, uh, clued into the, the, the scientific data out there. Other times I think it's just this is the world we know. This is yeah. what we assemble things out of and it matches. It ends up matching those forms in the, you know, in the, in the same sense that one assembles a, a chimera out of uh, existing animals. You kind of do that on a subconscious level. But then also I think it just comes down to the, just the utter weirdness and, and, and amazingness of the natural world that no matter how weird our imagination is, no matter just how fantastically creative uh, this monster is that we dream up, the natural world is going to have us beat. Like that's right. just how weird and wonderful um, our, our world of biology is. Yeah, I mean, I can't list uh, all of the episodes that we've done on natural organisms that are just like utterly crazy compared to anything I've ever seen in a horror movie. I'm yeah. thinking of a lot of like, like the underwater creatures we've covered, like the Osadax boneworm or the Hydra, stuff like that. So oh, yeah. Whew. And in fact, we'll be coming uh, back around to some uh, marine examples that line up with various functions uh, of of its anatomy. But first, tell me this: so it lives in a sewer. What mm-hmm. other what other uh, creatures that live in a sewer does it have parallels with? Well, I mean, you can look at it two different ways, right? Because there are numerous examples of uh, troglozines, uh, and these are you know creatures that uh, that live underground, but they they don't completely uh, finish out their life cycle there. They have to you know come up for something. In the case of of uh, it, it comes up to eat, uh, or to to hunt at any rate. Uh, so you have various uh, subterranean creatures that line up there, and indeed you have subterranean creatures that live in a guano rich environment. Uh, as with uh, environments where the cave is filled with bat guano and it lives in a sewer. On the other hand, you have a number of species that are very well adapted to artificial human-made subterranean systems, rats, fleas, and, of course, mosquitoes, which we've talked about on the show here in terms of the London mosquito, which is seems to be diverging from the surface mosquito by virtue of its life underground. And then coming back to that whole excrement thing as well, I mean, you have uh, everything from, say, a dung beetle to the African penguin uh, depend on uh, feces for their life. So it's not something that I think King uh, really got into in the books or or shows up in the movies at all. But, uh, you know, it's not completely uh, unrealistic to say that you would have this strange creature that lives in such close uh, confines uh, with uh, with human excrement and human waste. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, I, I'm trying to remember from all three iterations. There's no moment where they really address that beyond just. And this is in the trailer for the new movie where they t- talk about gray water and mm-hmm. what gray water is, and and uh, just the idea of them traipsing around in this dirty water throughout the entire time that they're down there. But yeah, there's no point where like there's nothing scatological about No, I think movies. it's it's a suitably foul place for a foul creature to live, yeah. um, but it seems to have other benefits to it uh, besides uh, what it contains. Now, all right, this may be a spoiler, although I think like for this the length of this story, this is just kind of basic mm-hmm. uh, role-playing game rules of how it operates, yeah. right? So it's a periodic predator, right? Right. Uh, yeah, one of its most uh, notable features is it has – 
for starters, a ridiculously long life uh, lifespan. And then as far as its life cycle goes, it has these 27 to 30-year hibernation periods. So it comes out, it, it, it eats, and then it goes away for 27 to 30 years and then comes back again. And uh, in the book, uh, in the show, it's been doing this since the mid-18th century when people first started uh, living in the dairy area. Yeah, that's right. Like there's there's always these incidents, these horrific incidents that precipitate its uh, uh, hunting period, yeah. right? So like they've got one where it's a uh, – I think it's called the Bradley Gang. They're like a bank robbery gang. There's this huge massacre with mm-hmm. them. And then – 27 years after that, you've got the fire at the black spot where like a a lot of people died in this horrible fire. So the thing is, lengthy hibernation periods like this, they're not completely out of keeping with the natural world. You have thermophilic bacteria that may hibernate for up to 100 million years before they're swept from chilling depths to hot spots of geothermic activity. And that's exactly the sort of uh, sleep cycle that even a, a, you know, a billion year old creature like it can probably appreciate. Now, hibernation, of course, is a way for an organism to ratchet down energy expenditure and survive on energy reserves uh, in order to survive periods of otherwise lethal resource depletion or environmental change. Yeah, and there's actually a pretty interesting mathematical model that we can turn to here to try to understand that system a little better. It's called predator-prey modeling, and it's when you take equations to show a system in place between a predator species like it and a prey species like the children of Dairy, Maine. Uh, and this form of math helps predict how these species will interact, especially when one is the primary food source for the other. So the famous example that's been used in this is a relationship between wolves and moose on Isle Royale in Lake Superior. It's been studied since the 1950s because, first of all, there's very little food for the wolves to eat other than the moose on this isle. And second of all, the isle itself is geographically isolated, which limits other factors that would come into play, like, for instance, hunting or migration. Now, it's uh, worth pointing out here, uh, just because this, this comes up a little bit here and comes up later on, but for all intents and purposes, it is stuck in dairy. Like, yeah. it does not seem capable or willing to move to another area. It was happy to just sit there and wait for people to come to it. And I think this model may help us figure that out a little bit. So the most famous of these equations is called the Latka-Volterra system. And it's named after the scientists who came up with it. Latka argued that you can apply physical principles to biological systems. And this was part of his broader work in this book called The Elements of Physical Biology. Volterra was a physicist who was trying to help his son-in-law, actually, with a biology problem. And subsequently, he ended up working on the interactions of species searching for a mathematical theory of evolution. So this whole thing comes together. Usually, these equations boil down to representations of the change in a prey population versus the change in a predator population. We saw something similar when we did that episode on zombie math last year, which Mm -hmm. may have been one of our October episodes. I can't remember. Uh, But without getting too far into the weeds on the math, each equation essentially uses the following form, birth function minus death function. Now, in the Isle Royale example, the model looks like this. In the absence of predators, the prey should increase at a rate that is proportional to the current quantity of the prey. Basically, what this means is the more moose there are around to mate with each other without being hunted, the more calves are going to be born. But in the absence of prey, the predators should die off at a rate 
that is proportional to the current predator population. So if there are more wolves and they eat all the moose and there's no more moose to eat, the wolves are going to start to starve. So Lotka argued that prey should decrease and predators should increase at rates that are proportional to the product of the prey times the predators. Or alternatively, the moose deaths should be related to the interaction of the wolves and the moose as should the wolf births. So since then, they will need plenty of moose for food to have healthy pups, right? Either way, there's this relationship between the predator population and the prey population. Too many prey results in more predators who then swamp the prey, which then subsequently causes a decrease in their population. This would lead to the predators dying out and the whole cycle beginning again. Now let's apply this to the it Pennywise example, okay? There's far more prey than there are predators since there's only one Pennywise that's going around and eating children. So this should mean that there will be a proportional increase in the population of human children, which there is as far as we can tell. When we see the history of dairy, the town gets bigger and bigger every time there are these 27-year gaps. Pennywise's biggest fear then should be that it itself will run out of children to eat, which is probably why it hibernates every 27 years. Ultimately, this assists it so it doesn't starve to death. Or, subsequently, it would have to leave its lair for the rest of the broader, unknown territory of the rest of the world, right? We don't know why it never leaves the sewers of dairy, right? Theoretically, I guess it could just, like, rampage around all of America and eat everything in its wake, but eventually it would probably be discovered and taken down. Yeah, or we just presume that it it cannot move for some reason or another. So... What if Pennywise, though, were to somehow give birth to more monstrosities? It may then face difficulties feeding this brood if there isn't enough food available to it. So perhaps this is why Pennywise allows the dairy population to grow in these waves every 27 years. So when it has children itself, there will be more than enough to eat for its entire family. But it's worth noting that dairy's population isn't hunted by anything else, and it has the capability of migration, right? So this is a lot more complex of a a food system than we see on this aisle with the wolves and the moose. So I think there has to be something else going on here, possibly psychological, and maybe we'll talk about this later in the episode, that keeps the people in dairy so that food is always available every time Pennywise wakes up. Now, the scariest pragmatic rule about these predator-prey models is this quote, predators are always hungry and eat the same proportion of prey no matter how large the number of prey gets. So this implies no matter how big dairy gets, Pennywise is always going to eat dozens of kids every 27 years. And that, I think, is part of what is so ultimately terrifying. Yeah. Now, here's a here's another reason to vanish for such long periods of time in between meals uh, to counter anti-predator adaptation. Ah. OK. So so think about it. Periodical cicadas come up from time to time in reference to it. They come up in the movie uh, and I presume they came up in the book as well. Uh, but it's been a while. Uh, but the, these are highly successful insects that are also prey species. And they spend most of their life cycles underground, only uh, emerging in massive broods in order to overwhelm the predators. Predators have a feeding frenzy. They grow fat, but they can't eat everyone. Right. That's the, that's the basic cicada way. 
And then after that, uh, that feeding frenzy, they disappear for 7, 13, 17 years. These are all prime numbers, by the way, before they emerge uh, again. And again, you know, just overpower the predators with sheer numbers. And the theory here is that the prime numbers involved keep the predators from receiving periodic population boost by synchronizing their own generations to divisions of the cicada's emergence period. This is according to a 2001 paper in Complexity Journal by Goals, Schulz, and Marcus uh, titled Prime Number Selection of Cycles in a Predator-Prey Model. Okay, okay. So then so the theory applied here then would be that it is doing something similar. It's trying to uh, only have periodic population boosts by synchronizing its generations. But as far as we know... It hasn't had any children yet. Uh, correct. So, yeah, it's it's not a really a you know a one to one comparison because one is a model of, uh, of 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 prey species dealing with predators. This is a predator that is hibernating in order to uh, maximize its uh, utilization of the prey. And the and the other factor here is that its dormancy years may or may not be prime. It uh, kind of depends how you you cut it. Twenty seven is a popular number, especially in the movie. But I've also seen it described as a twenty seven to thirty year dormancy, so it could be prime. Okay. Uh, perhaps its uh, periodic slumber isn't just about allowing the herd to regrow but also to prevent human populations of dairy from adapting to its cycle. Uh, and, or, and, of course, to prevent at least uh, cultural anti-predator adaptations. You know, certainly there's not really enough time for any kind of evolved biological adaptation, but there could be – that could theoretically be enough time for people to develop new strategies, new ways of living or, you know, or just – leaving and, you know, go over to Castle Rock. They seem to have it a lot easier. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, though. I think we'll get into this later, but it seems like there's something else going on with the either the biology of it or the ecosystem of dairy that is keeping people there. And they seem to have just clouded over the Mm -hmm. idea that there's this monstrous predator in their midst. Uh, one more note about uh, hibernation. I uh, should point out that hibernation among carnivores is largely the domain of reptiles and anthropods. And in these cases, it's it's about annual avoidance of colder temperatures. Now, we might point to the fact that it seems to come out in the summer. I mean, certainly the, the It movie takes place in the summer. Uh, but then it disappears for so many years that it, it doesn't seem uh, to really be dependent upon temperature. If I remember correctly... The timeline, I think, is supposed to be something like the first attack, which is Georgie, mm-hmm. is in like October. And then months pass and then summer starts up and that's when it really heats up. Yeah. So this is another case where the the biology and the fantasy don't really line up that well. And we're kind of swinging that science cudgel uh, at ghosts again. So the thing that I think a lot of – and I noticed there's a video online about this – uh, that a lot of other, you know, science communicators are trying to tackle with the science of it is the shape-shifting aspect. Because there's lots of, as we've discussed with many of our weird creatures on the show, animals that are able to change their shape to survive and hunt. Yeah, yeah, everybody loves a good shape-shifting monster, right? Uh, the thing is, true shape-shifting is difficult to come by in the natural world. And certainly, if you look at it, and it has this, you know, the additional here of uh, psychic and hallucination-aided uh, versions of itself, uh, it becomes even more impossible. Now, evolution certainly produces various versions of mimicry, and it does use this uh, as with the initial as with the initial Pennywise scene, you know, taking the form of something to attract prey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're talking about a gradual process and not something that can be really mixed up in real time. 
However, uh, the version we see in the book and film is a deceptive feat reminiscent of the mimic octopus, uh, which can contort its body size, color, and texture to mimic such diverse species as lionfish, sea snakes, stingrays, sea anemones, and jellyfish. And and also like it, uh, the mimic uh, octopus also assumes the behavior and movement of its target in addition to its mere appearance. So mm-hmm. it, this provides one of, the, I think, the finest examples of, of shape-shifting in nature, at least insofar as it matches up with our, our, our fantastic notions of shape-shifting. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff, especially in this new version of the film with the shape-shifting and like how it uses the shape-shifting to, for instance – um, move differently or squeeze through spaces and things like mm-hmm. that. You didn't get a lot of that in the old movie, for instance, because there was sort of this idea that it had more of a, a established form that was hiding down in the sewers and that everything else were just hallucinations. But in the film version, I, I get the impression that it's more like it's a shape-shifting thing that's capable of creating uh, your worst fear through its shape-shifting by psychically scanning you. Yeah, but then again, it, it kind of breaks down when you start looking scene to scene because certainly there are some key shape-shifting scenes in the movie where it all feels very biological and organic. Mm. But then, you know, it's also like crawling out of a projector screen. And, That's right, yeah. And there's no, there's no like rational way that that works within the, the laws of our universe. Yeah, so. yeah. That definitely struck me as being more along the lines of like a, a hallucination. Yeah. All right, so one more thing I want to touch on here, and that is the deadlights. Uh, the deadlights uh, showing up, especially in the film, uh, you see it in the scene where it opens its mouth, mouth real wide, and you see these uh, these three pinpoints of, uh, of hellish light that transfix uh, the prey. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is another area where we have to be careful chasing magic with that uh, with that uh, with that cudgel of science. But especially uh, as we see in the movie, uh, it, it uses these things to subdue a victim or drive them mad. And here in the natural world, we certainly have creatures with bioluminescence, and some of them do use their dazzling lights offensively against prey. Now, not all of them directly apply here, but uh, consider the famed anglerfish, which is just an endlessly fascinating and monstrous creature. Mm-hmm. The female's dorsal spine protrudes uh, out over its mouth like a fishing pole with a fleshy, luminous, thanks to a symbiotic bacteria, lure that uh, attracts prey into swallowing distance. And then we return to the cephalopods because the cuttlefish has oh. been known to manipulate its chromatophores. That's the little uh, uh, elements in its skin that you know can uh, manipulate color and uh, and all. It can use these to dazzle the intended prey long enough to snatch it up, essentially hypnotizing it or confusing it with a pulsating psychedelic display. And they're they're particularly adapted to this because their skin possess uh, their skin possesses up to two hundred uh, uh, chromatophores per square millimeter, allowing for complex mating displays, but also this sort of predatory behavior. Man, I love a good cuttlefish video. There is oh, yeah. nothing like watching a cuttlefish video on YouTube or something like that. Like they are endlessly fascinating. Anytime I've ever seen them in an aquarium. They just uh actually the Chattanooga Aquarium was where I first saw one. I think same here. And uh I this actually inspired me like a decade ago. One of the first comics I ever wrote included a submarine that was modeled after a cuttlefish and it included uh they like added this this fake skin with chromatophores into it so that it could blend in with its surroundings. Yeah, yeah, we we should really come back and do uh do a new episode on cuttlefish. We have uh, I think we have an older episode on them. 
but there's they're always they're, they get a lot of uh, scientific attention so i'm sure there's new areas we could touch on and they're just always deserving of a study absolutely so let's take another break and when we get back we're going to get into its diet which seems to be composed of fear all right, we're back. Yeah, so I, I actually was talking to uh, my friend Dave Streepy about all this because he's he's a huge Stephen King fan. Yeah. He also reread the book this year, um, and he's seen the movie a couple of times. So I was asking him, like, well, what's the deal? Refresh my memory about uh, about it and its diet. And uh, it, it does seem to be a situation where it consumes fear or possibly consumes some flesh uh, that's been seasoned by fear or it only feeds on fear and only but it but it consumes flesh because that's what monsters do that's what children yeah. expect a monster to do yeah yeah it's not entirely clear but i think you've hit on the the possibilities here and i think that maybe what's going on here is related to fear conditioning as we know it in the psychological discipline. So I'm going to see if we can connect it here. Now, if you're unfamiliar, fear conditioning is a simple form of associative learning. This is where an animal learns to associate the presence of something that's a neutral conditioned stimulus, something like a light or maybe a tone, with the presence of a motivationally significant stimulus that is unconditioned, such as being electrocuted. This is usually what they do mm-hmm. is they electrocute a mouse uh, and, and they play a, a, a sound or they flash a light at it beforehand so that eventually this creates the classic Pavlovian behaviorism style psychology in which uh, the fear memories are consolidated over time such that they can be induced by presenting the condition stimulus on its own so that every time you flash the light or you play the sound – then the the mouse or the rat is scared of that, and that you don't even have to electrocute it anymore. Well, you know, go, speaking about going to the movie theaters, uh, I wonder to what extent it, the popcorn and Coke is is like that. Because oh, I see yeah. people get the giant Coke, the giant popcorn, and they go into the theater to watch, uh, you know, something like Alien Covenant. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why are you planning to eat and drink during this film? Um, do you even want that overpriced popcorn and Coke or is this just conditioning? Is this just a matter of yeah. this is what I expect? This is part of the experience. Oh, yeah. For me, like every time I get there, I just immediately start salivating for sugar. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just a sugar fix, um, which is probably related to my experience of going into a dark room. So – All right, we know that Pennywise thrives on fear, so it's possible that the citizens of Derry are experiencing their own form of fear conditioning that then subsequently leads to mass psychogenic behavior. And we're going to unpack the mass psychogenic behavior later. But over the centuries, Pennywise has conditioned them to both experience fear that subsequently feeds it and to also freeze in response to it so they don't end up running away or migrating, leaving. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's that's pretty solid. My only critique would be, how does how does its periods of inactivity affect that? Yeah, that's what I can't figure out either. And and I I'm trying to also understand what is the neutral stimuli that signals this to the people of mm. Derry, right? There's no light, there's no tone. Is it these balloons that suddenly start popping up everywhere on these oh, sewer yeah. grates, or is it? Uh, is it giving off some kind of pheromone throughout the entire city that maybe that's why it lives in the sewer system. It's got access to all of the, the, the grates that go up into people's homes. I'm not sure. But that is an interesting idea that there could be some additional uh, biological component here. 
Now remember, fear is our human defensive motivational system, and we evolved this way to protect ourselves from threats in our environment. We can measure fear as a complex constellation of behavioral and physiological responses. And we also know that fear conditioning itself is linked to the neurobiology of both learning and memory. So this is important. Is it possible that the system of fear in dairy is what prevents its residents from remembering or even learning about Pennywise in the first place? Like there's some kind of weird reverse fear conditioning going on here that makes it so they can't remember it. And then, in fact, fear conditioning is an ideal way for us to study how memory works in general because a basic Fear-inducing event can determine the way our brains actually shape memories. So if you go back and you look at the neural pathways through which a situation causes a creature to learn about fear, scientists actually hope that they can then figure out what the general mechanism of memory formation is. So hopefully by doing this, they can better treat malfunctions in our ability to control fear. So for example, treatment of anxiety, phobias, and panic attacks. Now, I think with, with dairy residents, especially with the adults, so one psychological reality that, that comes to mind as a possible explanation is that of normalcy bias. And there, there are plenty of examples of humans who simply don't react appropriately to a sudden threat or even freeze up and are unable to act at all. Or they freak out completely. Uh, I always go back to the aliens example for this. So, so think, think to that scene, the scene in aliens where everything's gone haywire. Yeah. Uh, the, the aliens have massacred, uh, the, uh, the Marines. If this were a game of XCOM, you have gotten a poor rating and lost like all your crew mostly. Uh, so you have Private Hudson and his whole thing is we're, we're all going to die, man. Game over, right? Right. He's Everyone just hysterically that. running around. Yeah. Now, Lieutenant Gorman, I don't know if you remember him. I do. He's ostensibly supposed to be the leader. Yeah, and he just panics and freezes up like he just can't he can't act. And then we have Hicks and Ripley, and they take the lead. They know how to act. They think rationally in the face of danger. Right. This is when Ripley like basically pushes Gorman out of the way and drives that that awesome tank thing in there and yeah. saves whoever's left. Yeah. The interesting thing is that this uh this this kind of matches up with the various ways that people react to disasters. Uh I, I was reading an article, this was actually on IO9 by a uh, writer uh, Esther Inglis Arkel. Oh yeah, I like reading her stuff mm-hmm. a lot. Uh and she po- she pointed out in, in her article that 70% of people in a disaster exhibit this uh you know, unusual la-di-da behavior. Uh, about <laughs> yeah. 10 to 15 percent freak out. You know, they go private Hudson on everything. And then the other 10 to 15 percent, they go the Ripley Hicks direction and uh, they actually get stuff done. So in other words, uh, you know, they get the hell out of Dodge. So the the question people ask then is what's going on with that uh, that 70 percent? You know, why why does 70 percent of people faced with say, you know, a massacre by alien monsters or potentially, um, you know, the, the steady, um, uh, you know, massacre of children by an extra dimensional shapeshifter. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea here is that you have to look at it two different ways. So 70 percent of people f- freezing and just kind of becoming doll people in the shape of face of danger. It could be a good thing because it means that um, that people who are in that state, they're going to be docile. They can be directed through the chaos by others so they can they can set there yeah they're not really helping a lot but they'll listen when ripley says hey 
you need to go drive that tank. Interesting. I never thought about it that way before. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it can certainly have its, you know, a burning building scenario, for example. There's a downside because you, that means they need to be let out. Yeah. They, they might otherwise stick around too long and suffer for it. Well, Gorman certainly does end up lasting for quite a while. Until mm-hmm. he ends up finally getting taken out. Yeah. Well, he, he has, a, I think, a moment of redemption. He there. does. Yeah. The downside here, of course, is that those 70 percent that uh, that that frees up that uh, that are unable to really grasp what's happening. Uh, they uh, retard the progress of the 10 to 15 percent of people who are acting appropriately. Mm-hmm. OK. Now, I'm not sure so how you're slowing the rest of us down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even though they're the ones who need to be saved. I'm not sure exactly how this would would break down for the population of dairy, but I think one of the one of the interesting things here is that since it is preying exclusively on children and adolescents, it's preying on individuals who have uh, less of a, a say in what the culture's doing, what what the society of the town is doing. They're, they're less a part of the decision making process, and they're going to have a, a harder time. Uh, finding acceptance and belief when they tell their story to adults. Yeah. So it it doesn't it almost doesn't matter that you have that that 10 to 15% ideally I guess the losers club from the 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 movie and the books. Uh, they're the 10 to 15% they're going to stand up, but they can they can't do as much about it because they're cut off from the adult world. You get the impression in in all three versions of it that regardless of what's going on with Pennywise, there's something wrong with this town in terms of adults just turning away from horrific acts, right? Like, so for yeah. instance, that scene that you, you see in the trailer, and I, this I believe was also in the miniseries and is definitely in the book, is whenever the Losers Club kids are getting harassed by the bullies, the adults just tend to turn the other way and go back indoors or the like there's a scene where like they're driving by yeah. and they just look kind of casually and then just keep going like they never, they they very rarely stop and try to break it up yeah and then in the, in the same way that especially the book explores racism homophobia and other yes. uh, issues it's it's very much a story it's very much a work that says hey what what were some of the the horrible things about uh, the world that we grew up in. What was wrong with it? What didn't work, uh, you know, from a, on a social and cultural level? I mean, in a way, that's the whole, that's kind of symbolized with Pennywise, right? Yeah. The symbol of childhood innocence that's corrupted by a darker force. Yeah, I think you just hit the nail on the head of, like, the strongest theme in the book that works so well, you know, why mm-hmm. why we keep coming back to this one Stephen King story over and over again. Now, one thing scientists have learned by experimenting on rats is let's think about the brain for a second here, okay? The auditory cortex part of the brain isn't necessary if you want to fear condition a rat using audio. They've actually placed lesions on these rats' brains, specifically in the auditory thalamus and the auditory midbrain. And they found that these lesions eliminated a rat's susceptibility to conditioning. This is weird because... We know that the nerve fibers of the auditory thalamus extend into the auditory cortex. They looked, these scientists, and they found that fibers are also reaching out to several subcortical locations in the brain, okay? And the major area where these are all located and that is affected by fear is the amygdala. And this has been considered the most important brain region when it comes to various forms of emotional behavior. So if we're talking about fear here and and Pennywise uh, either 
eating fear or creating fear conditioning, the amygdala seems to be where we want to look. They found that the central nucleus inside of the amygdala is the pivotal component of all of our fear conditioning circuitry. And this is because it provides connections to the various brainstem areas that are involved in controlling our spectrum of responses to fear. So the amygdala and specifically its lateral nucleus is the sensory system interface when it comes to fear conditioning. By following this research, the the scientists who've been looking at this, they've actually been able to map the entire stimulus response pathway in the brain from, you know, basically whether that light goes on or there's a tone or you get electrocuted to how it travels through the brain and uh, essentially triggers your fear st- uh, response. Now, uh, one thing I think that's worth thinking about here is that uh, the book and the films, I think they tend to work with sort of a non-scientific idea of what fear is and how the mind works. Yeah. It, but if we're to believe that it is psychic and perhaps also telekinetic, then perhaps it has the ability to man- manipulate uh, this portion of the brain through some form of electromagnetic stimulation. That could totally be it. And then let's look, let's drill down. On the molecular level, it seems that emotional memories are established for us and stored through the amino acid transmitter glutamate. Okay, this is important. It's present in our cells and the ones that reach the lateral nucleus I was just referring to. And its transmission is implicated in our memory formation. So likewise, some researchers have been able to totally block fear conditioning in animals by blocking the receptors they have for glutamate inside the amygdala. So this may explain what Pennywise's actually eating when it comes to fear. Now, outside of any kind of, uh, I guess, like transcendental idea of it, it eating the actual emotion in the air, right? Mm-hmm. We know that when we experience fear, there is neuroendocrine changes that include the rise of plasma prolactin, adrenocorticotropin, corticosterone, and catecholamines. Maybe it's the increase in these chemical levels that are either satiating it or somehow attracting it, right? So, like, it uh, is able to smell that fear somehow, for lack of a better term. Hmm. Well, one thing that comes to mind is that you could have a situation where, well, you know, it's a magical organism, so maybe it, it doesn't really need to eat in the way that, that actual real-world organisms do. But you could also have a situation where, yeah, it lives off of bacteria or, you know, something in the, the wastewaters of the dairy sewer, but it still needs a few key components that are only found in human brain chemistry. Yeah. And this isn't out of keeping with the natural world because you do have certain organisms where some of their prey decisions uh, are based on very specific chemical needs. Yeah, right. So then if that's true, what is Pennywise actually eating? Is it eating the amygdala? Is it eating the glutamate? We actually see it chewing on arms and all these kinds of things, right? But that seems that it's actually more for the purpose of generating fear-based stimuli. It doesn't look like it's actually eating the arms. It's just kind of chewing on them to freak everybody out. Yeah, it's just doing what children expect a monster to do. Now, you brought up other animals, Does Pennywise eat other animals other than human beings? I mean, other animals experience fear. It occurs nearly every animal group. You've got fruit flies, snails, birds, lizards, fish, rabbits, rats, monkeys, and, of course, people. All of them exhibit fear. Is it also scarfing down snails inside that sewer? No, I don't think so because there's that whole bit where it it sat there and waited until humans were available. Yeah, Uh, and then the mechanisms – 
that fear operates is are different in other creatures, but it seems at least that the pathways in mammals and possibly all vertebrates are very similar. So there's something specifically going on with humans, it seems, in this. It's something that we're creating that's different from the other mammals around dairy that it could be scaring and picking off. So then, all right, we've we've got all this. Uh, we seem to understand how it's eating or what it's eating, at least how it's creating fear. But what's up with the freezing? Why are the people in dairy just kind of, you know, not acting? So fear conditioning, even if the motivationally significant stimulus isn't present, actually can lead to immobility, high blood pressure, and a faster heartbeat. So the actual freezing up seems to be the symptom the citizens of dairy are exhibiting. But why is that? Well, it's an adaptation that allows them to decrease the probability of detection while also conserving energy. So somewhere deep in the back of these adults' minds, they know there's something dangerous going on and they're desperately trying not to be detected by it. Well, this this comes back to normalcy bias a little bit and the, the topic of psychogenic death. Um, we, have an, we have an older episode that, that covers that, so I'll have to link to that on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Uh, but yeah, this gets into the area of, say, like a possum playing dead, various yeah. other animals freezing up when threatened. And also, going back to the amygdala and glutamate receptors, remember, that's all related to learning and memory. And there's a huge aspect in this story in that the kids who know about it forget about it. And the adults can't seem to form memories about it. So it seems like somehow there's something about brain formation going on here that allows the children to remember it. But maybe their amygdalas aren't fully formed yet or something like that. And that is why they're able to uh, be more conscious of the Pennywise creature rather than the adults. Now, regardless, the amygdala isn't the only learning center of the brain. And it's an important component. But the entire network of the brain is necessary. I don't want to mislead our listeners by thinking like, oh, the amygdala is like the one way that we learn or form memories. That This would basically be like saying like a car engine is the only part of a car that's necessary in order to drive somewhere. So look, we're all grown-ups here. I mean, we know that all this talk of an extra-dimensional organism that takes the form of a clown and kills our children is just completely unbelievable. Uh, as such, let's present a few alternate theories as to why a town like Derry could seem to go bad and, and or just have this shared experience uh, of this uh, awful interloper. I remember uh, when I was younger and I was having a hard time in school, like getting bullied and stuff like that, saying to my mom, because I had read it, saying, there's something about this town. There's something, <laughs> it's like a Stephen King book. There's something wrong with the people. There's something bad about them. I wonder if there's something in the water. Yeah, this is worth thinking about. We're going to get into uh, possible things in the water here uh, because, uh, all right, if we're going to analyze what's going on with dairy, we have to we have to sort of uh, identify it as something that can be, uh, you know, more easily studied. Mm -hmm. So we might surmise that dairy suffers from just a high crime rate. Okay. Certainly have all these murders, disappearances, et cetera. And the interesting thing here is that, that crime is often grouped under the category of, of a wicked problem which we've discussed about a problem that is maybe not that easy to identify and then difficult to treat. Yeah. You know, any, any kind of large-scale treatment changes the problem. It does certainly seem like in the narrative that even outside of Pennywise roaming around and hunting all these children, that Derry is a pretty violent place to live. Yeah. 
Now, you might take, for instance, the high crime rate of New York City during the 70s and 80s and, and the subsequent lowering of that crime level. Uh, and certainly key individuals and institutions were more than willing to take credit for that drop. But you, you're, you're left with a lot of different theories as to why we had this, uh, this surge in crime and then this uh, decrease in, t- in crime, this, uh, this inverted U uh, scenario. And uh, you'll find theories relating to gun control, policing, prison sentencing, access to legal abortions, etc. But one of the possible causes, and one which I think is most interesting for discussion here, is pollution-based. And I think we might be able to apply it to dairy if we tweak it a little bit. So you have this guy, Carl Smith, a professor of public uh, economics and government at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he defines crime as an epidemic. And he says, all right, if it is an epidemic then you have to break down the spread of epidemics to determine their cause. So he says, all right, first question, does it spread along communication lines? If so, then it's informational. Does it spread along transportation lines? If so, then it's microbial. If it's uh, everywhere at once, then it's probably a molecule. Now, horror fiction presents plenty of examples of these. Uh, you know, you can think of the curse of the ring, uh, in the mouth of madness. These are straight up, you know, informational uh Curses, informational contagions. Yeah, mimetic in a way. Yeah. And that doesn't seem to be the case in Deary, right? Because the kids only later realize that they're seeing the same clown. So it's not like this idea that you tell the story of Pennywise and it spreads. Now, transportation lines, well, every disease or zombie horror movie gets into this. And uh, and here in Deary, if it were transportation-based, uh, and if we limit just our study to the Deary area – then you could make a case for the water sewage system transporting it around. Yeah, and this is this comes up over and over again in all versions of it. This is where they they end up finding the town maps and layering mm-hmm. them on top of how the sewage system works and where it all pops out. Yeah, and uh, I guess the only criticism there would be, well, hey, is is there really a safe place in Derry? Like certainly, if you're close to that sewage uh, line and yeah. in certain certain key locations, you're in more danger, but. I, I never got the the sense that they were safe neighborhoods. No, I, I don't think so because if you think about it, regardless of like how big the openings are to the <laughs> to the sewer system, if you live in any kind of abode that is connected to the sewage system, it has access to you, right? Like Beverly yeah. is able to hear it through just the hole in her sink. Yeah. Now all of this non dairy stuff that I've been discussing here about um, about the, the spread of some sort of an epidemic, uh, this comes from a 2016 Mother Jones article titled "Lead: America's Real Criminal Element" by Kevin Drum, and he profiles the work of Rick Nevin, who uh, who made the argument that gasoline lead may explain as much as 90 percent of the rise and fall of violent crime over the past half century. So uh, Nevin here, he'd worked on he'd worked for an initiatives to to get lead paint out of homes uh, due to the connection between lead exposure in small children and later life complications like lower IQ, hyperactivity, behavioral problems and learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea here is that lead emissions from tailpipes rose steadily from the early 40s through the early 70s, nearly quadrupling. Uh, then, as unleaded gasoline began to replace leaded gasoline, emissions plummeted, all in an upside-down U pattern that lines up with the rate of violence. Wow. Yeah. So he points out, quote, when differences of atmospheric lead density between big and small cities largely went away, so did the differences in murder rates. Now, the exact culprit here would be tetraethyl lead. Uh, but for this to work as a Deary theory, I, I think we'd need a continuous or at least fluctuating high level 
of uh, of that lead in the local environment. Now, Deary was an iron-working town, mm-hmm. we're, uh, we're told, and I believe there's a, a textile uh, industry there as well. So you could probably make some sort of case for a localized high level of atmospheric lead density. So this could possibly be why just Derry's just like a mean town, even outside of the fact that there's an extraterrestrial shape-shifting clown monster there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you can I guess you could sort of tease apart what the relationship between its inherent vileness and uh, the presence of this creature would happen to be. Okay. Um, now, it wouldn't explain hallucinations of clowns, obviously. Right. For that, you might look to uh, uh, to ergot poisoning, ah, which, yes. uh, which we, we've uh, we discussed in our LSD episodes, mm-hmm. and also in a in an older episode that Joe and I did, the psychedelic nightmare of uh, ergotism. And uh, I'll leave everyone to check out that episode for a, a full explanation of of that. But when we're talking uh, ergot, we're talking about one of the organic precursors of LSD that acts as a parasite of grasses, including rye. So if you have contaminated rye and enough of it makes it into the local food supply, a town can experience the symptoms, uh, uh, certain symptoms that uh, are rather uh, nightmarish and horrific. Uh, in gangrenous uh, ergotism, we're talking blackened, peeling flesh. And in convulsive ergotism, you're talking like uh, nervous dysfunction, a feeling that spiders are crawling on your body, seizures, hallucinations, mania, and psychosis. And accounts of this kind of poisoning go back as far as at least 600 BCE in Assyria and continue on up to around 1951 CE. So, okay, those are some pretty good hypotheses for external stimulants that are causing this, right? Pollution, maybe ergot. What about something internal? What if it's psychological? So let's look at what's termed as mass psychogenic or mass sociogenic illness. This term is used in epidemiology to refer to the rapid spread of illness signs and symptoms affecting members of a cohesive group originating from a nervous system disturbance involving excitation, loss, or alteration of function, whereby physical complaints that are exhibited unconsciously have no corresponding organic set of causes. Now, this is thought to be related to conversion disorder, where symptoms like, for instance, blindness, paralysis, and other neurological symptoms are caused by psychological conflicts, not physiological stimuli. So this could be used in the context of the actual credible threat that's provoking the anxiety is Pennywise, right? For instance, uh, it it goes along the lines that sometimes people get psychologically freaked out when they smell a noxious odor if they fear that they're going to be under some kind of chemical attack anyways. Mm. So what's interesting is that most physicians are less knowledgeable about this uh, than they are in terms of like individual cases of hysteria. The actual like epidemic hysteria hasn't really uh, become common knowledge in our medical fields yet. So this is despite over the fact that there are 200 published accounts of mass responses to situations that involved either suspected poisonings or other events. And unfortunately, the impact of such events is either underreported or underappreciated. So again, this could potentially explain what's going on in dairy. Why? Because it's difficult to recognize actual outbreaks of sociogenic illness because they're so diverse in nature. In fact, if you take a historical overview and you look at all of them, it tells us that the features of mass sociogenic illnesses tend to mirror popular social and cultural preoccupations that are defined by distinct eras. For instance, 
alien abduction, as we've recently talked about Mm -hmm. on the show. Or they could also reflect our unique social beliefs about the nature of the world. So maybe this is why Pennywise takes the form of a clown, right? Now, in the original novel, this is all uh, taking place in the 50s, right? right? And then again in the 80s. In the new film, it's taking place in the 80s. Both of those, I think, fall pretty well within the era of the clown. Yeah, I mean, 1980s was when I was watching uh, Bozo the Clown on TV pretty regularly. Yeah, me too. Now, mass psychogenic illnesses can actually be complex when stress gets built up and becomes chronic in an entire population. For instance, in regions where people live in constant fear of chemical weapons or maybe witchcraft or you get these mass psychogenic events that can affect hundreds or even thousands of people at a time. And it can also be linked to physical illnesses that are muscular tics, twitching, and shaking. Here's a quick example. In 1998, 800 children in Jordan believed that they had suffered from some kind of side effect of a tetanus diphtheria toxoid vaccine that was administered in their school. 122 of them were admitted to a hospital. But the vast majority of these symptoms were actually psychological and not physical. So let's look at Pennywise as an example. Perhaps the townspeople of Derry are experiencing a mass sociogenic illness in that they have lost the functional ability to care when harm is being done to their children. Their mass nervous system, if you want to call it that, appears to somehow be inhibited. And no one else outside of Derry even recognizes this, right? Like, there's Mm got to be towns around Derry. But because these outbreaks are so difficult to pin down, they don't recognize that there's anything wrong going on. So what's the credible threat, though, that's provoking their anxiety into apathy? Is it Pennywise or is it... Pennywise getting by on their response to something else that's distinct to that era. Maybe it's the high crime rate that you were talking about earlier because of lead poisoning or something else. Subsequently, this anxiety can't be managed clinically because of how difficult it is to just identify the stimulus that's introducing it so you can then reduce it. It could potentially come down to those violent events that occur every 27 years, like we mentioned earlier, right? You've got the black spot burning down, the Bradley gang robberies, the mass murders at the Derry settlement when it was originally founded. All of these could have acted as triggering events that are causally related to the malady, invoking anxiety and stress in the population and causing a temporary emotional detachment. So if all of this is sociogenic in origin, there may be other symptoms as well. For instance, I wonder if the people in Derry are experiencing nausea or dizziness or headaches or weakness because these all seem to go along with such events. We do see a lot of lethargic adults. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a big pharmacy. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I think the Pennywise narrative actually works better in this 1980s setting than it does in the 1950s. Specifically because the child abuse kidnapping panic that was going on in the 1980s, it was super prevalent in that decade. So that would seem to be a predisposing factor that produces the sociogenic illness in the first place based on the historical shifts. You know, whether you've got these surges of violence going on every 27 years and then you've got the fear and uncertainties that are preoccupying the citizens of Derry to begin with. Wouldn't it be crazy if uh, like everything that's happening in Castle Rock is just 100 percent legit? Everything <laughs> that's happening in Jerusalem's a lot, 100 percent legit. And even like the, you know, the little bald doctors, Crimson King, all of that 100 percent real. 
but it just causes everyone in Deary to have this uh, uh, th- this mass um, uh, hallucination of so Pennywise. none of yeah nothing is actually going on in Derry, uh whether whether we're talking about uh, it or any of the other Stephen King novels that take place there. Oh no, I say everything else is happening in Deary is happening, oh, okay. but it's just causing <laughs> it's causing everyone to imagine Pennywise. Hmm, that's an interesting explanation. I want I wonder what Uncle Stevie would say to that. Yeah, you know, well, it does raise raise an interesting question, you know, because so much of our consideration of perceptions of the supernatural and, uh, you know, alternate sensory experiences, it's it's a situation where the fantastic becomes real due to real world stimuli. Yeah. So if you have a world in which you have all this real world stimuli that makes us see crazy things anyway and feel th- crazy things anyway, if you had something that was actually supernatural and real – what would that do to the um, yeah, to the exactly. fraudulent cases? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have lots of examples. I, I'm not going to drill through all of them here, but I, there's four or five examples in our notes here of cases that are very similar to this. You've got a a cotton mill in Lancashire, England in 1787 where people were hysterical thinking that there was a disease that was contaminating cotton. In 2015, 40 pupils at the Outwood Academy in Ripon, England had to be treated for dizziness and nausea uh, because they had a mass psychogenic illness. Uh, You had another instance in 1999 in Belgium, 26 children from one school developed nausea, headache, fatigue, palpitations, all this stuff, they thought it was because of bottled Coca-Cola. It went so far, Coca-Cola themselves thought they might be responsible for the outbreak, and they blamed it on bad carbon dioxide and possibly a fungicide that was applied to the transport pallets that the Coke was on. Turned out all of it was psychological. And then my favorite example, and I wish, maybe we should just do a whole episode on this because I have a ton of notes on this, is the Pokemon panic example from (laughs) 1997. A lot of people remember this when there was that, that phase uh, where in Japan it was reported that like 618 child viewers were all experiencing these symptoms of nausea, shortness of breath, dizziness, headaches, etc. They thought there was like some kind of mass epileptic event going on because they were all watching Pokemon. And it turned out, again, they're pretty sure this was all psychological. Yeah. You know, two of my favorite examples are, um, are Spring Hill Jack from 19th century London and uh, the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, uh, Mattoon, Illinois, in 1944 and 45. And in, in that case, it was the idea that there was a, a mysterious uh, stranger going around gassing people with a gas gun. What if every town has a Pennywise in it, but you have to suffer a mass psychogenic event for Pennywise to be able to basically run around and do what it does? And so you've got the Mad Gasser in this one town. You've got a clown in another town. You've got Spring Hill Jack in another town. Yeah. We well, just really need to keep it together. It's a franchise. And yeah. hey, most most small towns out there have at least one statue of a clown at their local McDonald's restaurant. So Ooh, who knows? Okay. Well, I think we've done a pretty exhaustive look at what could be going on, not just with Pennywise, but with the citizens of Derry, who just seem to be strangely unaware of what's going on with their children getting eaten by a clown. Yeah. So, hey, if you have uh, thoughts you'd like to share about the book, the miniseries, the the motion picture, and, of course, our analysis here today, you can get in touch with us uh, a number of different ways. Uh, First of all, 
Hit us up on uh, social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. And on Facebook, we have that wonderful discussion module. Uh, it's a group that you can uh, you know, apply to join. Uh, basically, you just have to know what the show is to get admitted. And then you can have discussions with us, but also with other uh, insightful fans of the show. And hey, if you want to check out all of these other instances of Monster Science or Monster of the Week type related programming that we've done, you can find all of that on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. We've got lots of it. That's where uh, Robert's Colrophobia clown videos and blog post lives. That's where all of our previous Monster Science videos live. Although, it's October, people. We are going to be placing all of that stuff on our social media channels. Get ready for some Monster Science. And if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, just shoot us an email at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.